This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, Dr. David Lukens, a 20-year senior staffer for Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a senator, dean of political science at Turo College, founding longtime chair of the Ben Zakai Honor Society, the NCSY Alumni Hall of Fame of sorts, of which I am a proud member myself, actually, and just a fascinating all-around person. Dr. Lukens has spent his life engaged in politics in one way or another, and what's very refreshing about him is that he's such a moderate, such a centrist, in a time that seems ever more polarized. We just finished an election that was, of course, so tumultuous and contentious. And actually, my original intention was to release this right after the election, maybe within a week or so. Had some technical difficulties and had to end up pushing it off a week. But we're still in the afterglow of that national experience, in some ways a national trauma, really. And his, his is such a voice of calm and reason. So even though I'm not usually that political on this show, I think this is a good cause for a moderate exception. Heads up that a little bit of his conversation is at times hard to hear. We didn't have the greatest connection. He was traveling, taking a vacation, I guess, after the election and didn't have a great internet connection. But I think we cleaned it up okay and he's got a lot of really important things to share. Meanwhile, a reminder, sponsorships or dedications are available. Email jewsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Jewsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Please subscribe wherever you may be listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast. And please let your friends and family know how to do so as well. That way you'll get every episode automatically into your podcast inbox. And now to our conversation with longtime political commentator, staffer, Jewish community activist, Dr. David Lukens. We're here with Dr. David Lukens, a longtime political consultant, a dean, college, political scientist, and a very active Jew. How are you, Dr. Lukens? Thank God. I'm uh, confused why they think about honor my friend Ari. At the same time, it's hard to say no to somebody. We learned that from this week's portion that you know you're not supposed to say no to people who are worthy of your attention and you certainly are you've done good stuff i appreciate that thank you and yes as you've uh, referenced several times that uh, you perceive your own life as rather pedestrian and uh, we'll let the the listeners be the judge of that but take us to the top and tell us where that life did indeed begin well i was very fortunate that i was born to a very special family my Father was a, a actually a famous psychologist. Published four hundred journal articles, number of books. He was the founding chair of psychology, both at Yeshiva College, later at Turo College, and the consulting founding chair for Bar Ilan. My mother was one of the very few women, one of the first women in the United States. At least she was the fourteenth to get a PhD in mathematics, and was the first woman to become a tenured professor at an engineering school in the United States. Which school? RPI, Rensselaer Polytech Institute, where she was later professor emeritus. 
And I, I mean, I, I was very, my family was, was religious. I went to day school, I went to Yeshiva High School. I was very fortunate. I stand in awe of those who have taken the path back to Torah. I don't know if I would have made the same decisions, but I, Tosh Baruch was kind to me. I didn't have to make those decisions. I was born to a caring religious family. I went to good schools. I had the good fortune to belong to a youth group called NCSY, which helped convince me to make probably one of the most important decisions of my life. My mother's university would pay my tuition to any college I got into in America. I got to a place called Yale University, and I was convinced by my rebellion in high school and by NCSY to turn that down, even though I could have gone for free, go to another school with the same initials, Yeshiva University. And all I got out of that, I met, I had two very special teachers, Rabbi Aaron and Joseph Soloveitchik, who deeply affected my thinking in life. And I met the young lady in CSY, I was with my wife for 51 years, and is the secret of any success I've had in my life. So, um, indeed, that was a crucial decision. Now, going back a little bit further back in time, where was your family originally from? Were your parents uh, first generation, or what's the origin of the family? My great-grandfather was a company state. He was captured in the Tsar's army as a child, baptized as Russian Orthodox, raised in the Tsar's orphanages and the Tsar's army. One of the very few who came out Jewish, thanks to a man known as the Samosedek, Third Lubavitcher Rebbe, who sent Shluchim at risk of their lives into the orphanages. And when he finally got out of the Tsar's army, he went to Lubavitch and he learned about Judaism and they arranged a marriage for him. And he had one son who was drafted in 1905 into the Russian army right before the Russian Japanese War. He went to the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe and asked him what he should do. He said, Go to the army. Go to the army. First day in the army. The commanding officer says, oh, I recognize your name. Your father saved my life during the Crimean War. You will not go to the front. You will not be sent out to be cannon fodder in Siberia. You will stay here and make me coffee. After two years, he gave him the best gift a Russian general could give a Jew. Papers to go to America. Went back home, married a childhood sweetheart, headed off to New York. I had three sons. My father was the second. My father, in fact, was named after the Continista. That is incredible. You have an actual direct link to the, the Cantonists and that whole very tragic period of time. I was a guest speaker a number of years ago at the Kino Shluchim of Babich, and I told the whole story. And it is a dramatic story. It's so rare to hear about somebody coming back. Those were like 25-year sentences usually, right? Absolutely. Even longer in some cases. He was five years old when he was captured and put into the Tsar's army. Five years old. He knew the first line of Shema. He knew his parents' names. That's all he knew. And he got out, and of course, my father never knew him. My father just knew from, my, I know him from my grandfather's stories, and my father knew them also, but it's a miracle, and that's one of the reasons I think my family is so committed, my brothers and myself, reaching out to others, because our family was affected and moved in that way. Growing up, you said, what city in New York were you in? We were born in Brooklyn. When I was two years old, my parents moved to Montreal. My parents started McGill University. And then we spent a couple of years at the University of Oregon, where I had private tutoring. Then we moved to Miami, where I went to Hebrew Academy, SIFTA. And then my parents stopped. Meanwhile, moved to Albany, where they lived the last 40 years of their lives. I stayed, there was no yeshiva high school in Albany, so I stayed behind and finished in Miami. And then I went to, as I mentioned, I went to University, Gentle Tutelage and Inspiration of the Salvation Brothers. Now, were you interested early on in... Politics, was that something you followed closely? 
What was your early education there? I actually, from an early age, wanted to be a synagogue rabbi, and then I met a young lady who said she didn't want to be a rabbitson, so I, I had to do something else. So I, I got a full fellowship. I was in a first year. I'm going to City University of New York, PhD program, and the government is not only paying for my education, but giving me a $300 a month stipend. That's like getting, oh, about $2,400 a month now. It was a good deal. I was a cold oil guy in a sense, being supported by the U.S. government while I wrote my doctoral thesis. It was a wonderful deal. This said, Akash Baruch has been very, very kind to me. And uh, had been very involved in NCSY all this time. I think you and I met in NCSY, in fact. That's right. What about politics and political theory early on drew you in? Again, I was deeply influenced by Rav Aaron Soloveitchik, who felt that Judaism could be defined in a one sentence. A perfect God, dared to create an imperfect world, and deigned to create an imperfect creature, Jew and non-Jew. It was just the assignment to perfect his imperfect world. So I felt very involved, and Ravarin is very involved, very outspoken about civil rights and about helping non-Jews, and I got involved in a few things, and uh, again, in politics, I was very fortunate. And guess why sent me to the White House Conference on Youth in 1971, Estes Park, Colorado. And at this conference, there were about 3,000 young people from around the country, and there was a, a number of debates on issues, and I forged a coalition with the black African-American, they call themselves Blacks and the Black group, their leadership, to support the resolution on Israel, and I would support the resolution on apartheid. And then I was approached by the Latinos, Chris Garcia, and Chris said to me, I heard you do coalition building, and I said, you heard. And she said, we have a resolution here on behalf of the farm workers. I said, great, my, my rabbi, my teacher, Rabbi Soloveitchik, supports the farm workers. The Orthodox Union, which I'm then on the, already on the board, supports the farmer. She said, well, that's terrific. She said, what can we do for you in return? And I said, well, here's a resolution we have on Soviet Jewry. She said, deal. And so we both introduced our resolutions. And we got all four resolutions through. Apartheid, Soviet Jewry, the farm workers, and support for Israel. So when they picked 10 people to be on the steering committee from 3,000-something of the conference, I got a little reputation as a dealmaker. I ended up being on the steering committee, got to meet Richard Nixon, got to go to the White House, got to meet a man named Hubert Humphrey, but I met Walter Mondale, next thing I know, I'm Walter's position in Hubert Humphrey's presidential campaign in 1972. I was 24 years old. I was running his Jewish outreach. He lost the nomination, and then he taught me the most important political lesson of my life. He called me into his hotel suite the night he lost the nomination to George McGovern. I said, I just got off the phone with Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon, your arch enemy? The man who cost you the presidency four years ago, he said, David, something is more important than political parties. You'll be getting a call tomorrow. Phones those days. You'll be getting a call in the hotel room tomorrow, be in the room at 10 o'clock. You'll be getting a call from the White House. They're going to ask you to be a national vice chairman of Democrats for Nixon. And I worked for Nixon for the next six months. And it's interesting. I've only worked in two presidential campaigns in my life. You bring Humphrey and... Richard Nixon, the same year, and one lost, one won. And because of my work there, I got to meet Moynihan, where then went on to spend 20 years working on his Senate staff. Again, as Ron Soloveitchik says, a Kurdish bar manipulates the vicissitudes of life. He 
he gives us the opportunities and we have to make the decisions. We have the fear to make the decisions, but I certainly manipulated them in a way that I got very good choices. And I've been very fortunate ever since. I've been teaching at Terrell College since it opened. I have tenure, I'm chair of the political science department, and I've, I dabble, and, you know, 20 years on Pat Moynihan's staff, I have what to say, and I dabble and comment on politics as it goes along and help out, and sometimes Democrats, sometimes Republicans. You mentioned uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who's really a beloved figure within the Jewish community. He's passed, of course, a number of years ago, but I guess you got involved with him by meeting him through your connection to Democrats for Nixon? Yes, when I was in Nixon, he became aware of my name, even though we didn't personally meet at the time. And then members of his staff reached out to me in 1980. I was approached but I helped a friend of his, Bess Myers, to the United States Senate. I'm a volunteer, no money, you know, not, not for pay, and I spent some time helping her out. And during that time, I met Tim Russert, who was his chief of staff. They were the famous moderator on Meet the Press, who became quite friendly. And after Bess Myers lost, Tim Russert said, would you like to come to work for Senator Moynihan? And I said, I have a full-time job at the college. He said, that's no problem. It doesn't bother us. And I said to the president of the college, Dr. Lander, I have a chance of working for an important United States senator. For some reason, that didn't bother him. So I flew down to Washington, and I met Pat Moynihan, and we had a nice chat. And next thing I know, I worked in 20 great years, and I'd like to thank the taxpayers for my federal pension. It's wonderful. And I learned so much from him. I'll tell you something I learned from Moynihan. I just yesterday, I emailed his widow, reminding her of this his fantastic line. On the morning after the Bush-Gore election, Senator Moynihan said to a group of us, what a wonderful country, he said. In other countries, there would be tanks in the street. This country, there are lawyers in the streets. Is that a great line? That's what I think about right now. Right now, there are lawyers in the streets. Thank God. There are plenty of lawyers. <laughs> well, you know, I have a son as a lawyer. So it's, good. it's good for the business. I was on a call last week organizing the Jewish Council of Public Affairs, which I, I, I've been zeichet to represent the OU in this organization since Lyndon Johnson was president and I was in college. And one of the top attorneys, intellectual attorneys in America, a traditional Jew, was on the call as the guest speaker. And he said, I gotta tell you one thing, whatever happens next week, it's gonna be very good for my profession. <laughs> and it certainly is. And I'm sure half of them are Jewish, at least. I did, don't take a count, you know, but. Uh... Tell me a little bit about Moynihan. I've heard you speak, you know, live in the past and sharing various stories about him. But I think you'd be an anachronism nowadays because he was, I guess, you'd be sort of a conservative Democrat, right? Would that be a fair classification? No. The best way to summarize Pat Moynihan was one month apart, a conservative publication had him on their cover saying that he was a neoconservative. A liberal publication had him on the cover saying he was a neoliberal. Pat Moynihan did not fit into easy pigeonholes. He was not easily defined. He um, was eclectic in his views. If Hubert Humphrey said you put country ahead of party, I think Pat Moynihan put country ahead of ideology. The issues on which he was embraced by conservatives, which he was embraced by liberals. And I think it's a shame that we, we want everything today to be easily you know, defined. You're in this camp, you're in that camp. The world is more complex. The world is more complex. I mean, for example, I was delighted that in Maine this week, about 20% of the voters put their ballots. They voted for Biden for president and for Susan Collins for the Senate. 
And we need moderates from both parties in the House and in the Senate. And I think, you know, Pat Moynihan, as I said, you know, he was a Democrat who supported Nixon. But he also worked on the staff of John F. Kennedy. He served in the sub-cabinet for John F. Kennedy and for Lyndon Johnson. He got fired from the Johnson White House for writing concerns about the black family. And he got fired from the United Nations for speaking up for Israel. He's the only man that can say he was fired by Lyndon Johnson and by Gerald Ford. That's a pretty good distinction, don't you think? <laughs> Quite a distinction, yes. What was his background in terms of how did he come up? What, what do you think fashioned that unique type of hybrid approach? Well, first of all, it wasn't that unique. As a matter of fact, ironically, his closest friend in the Senate, uh, in many respects, in that approach was a man named Joseph R. Biden. Uh, they were very close. They had very similar political views. Whether Joe Biden is the same Joe Biden as he was in the 80s, we're going to find out in the next few months, I think. But certainly, uh, Hubert Humphrey, Scoop Jackson, who Biden refers to as his mentors, and certainly Moynihan came from that same world. They were Cold War conservatives. They were social liberals. They were physical conservatives and social moderates. It's a whole different world. I mean, we, we, today, you, people are expected, you know, intersectionality. You have to check all the boxes. Moynihan would have detested that. I mean, he wrote the classic essay, Defining Deviancy Down. And that was sort of appalled him. At the same time, the hard right, white nationalism and its racist theories and its uh, anti-immigrant rhetoric would have also appalled him. I'm a big believer in this country. I think that this is, Winston Churchill was right, democracy is the poorest form of government, especially anything else ever tried by human species. And this country has strong institutions. We just been through a very, you know, I love people saying this, look, oh, it's the, the nastiest, worst election ever. I mean, come on, 1968, people were being killed, candidates were being assassinated. Now, the Democratic Convention was, was overturned by, by rioting. I mean, they just, Nelson Rockefeller was showered down from the floor of the Republican Convention and not allowed to speak. I think we, this is a terrific country. I think we have strong institutions, and whether you were for Biden, whether you were for Trump, you were for, hopefully you were for America. What are some of the things you worked on with Moynihan? Uh, what are some of like, the major bills or the major geopolitical events that occurred? Well, I was privileged to write the legislation mandating the movement of the Jerusalem Embassy to Israel and recognizing Jerusalem's capital. We, we met, we tried four different times and we finally did it. And the first time we had, we had the votes. In fact, Biden was a co-sponsor and fearing with a lead co-sponsor, as were a number of leading Republicans. And we got a call from a guy named Menachem Begin. He was no longer prime minister. He was a recluse. Reagan said he was going to be our bill. got on national television. And we had the votes override his veto. I remember this. I remember this like yesterday. I remember Bob Packwood telling Moynihan, I was in the room, he says, I got two-thirds of the Republican caucus, and Joe Biden said, well, we got the Democratic caucus, and we can override the veto, we're going to do it. And Moynihan said, I got a call from Menachem Begin. Yes, everyone got very quiet, because Begin was a recluse. He said, Menachem Begin said to me, Pat, never fight the battles of Jerusalem in the halls of Congress. Don't turn Israel into a political football. He said, Israel needs bipartisan support. Don't take on the president of the United States on the issue of Israel. And, of course, they withdrew the bill. And went through a whole series of permutations. And, of course, probably 
the Jewish point of view, it was exciting with Soviet Jewry. That was so exciting. That was so moving. It was. Uh, it's hard to describe what it was like. I mean, it reached the point that I got a call from Moynihan that he's going to Russia, and he's invited to give forty names, people that, that will, will come out. It's at the height of the there were many Jews out. Forty refused next he can get out in exchange for his coming, and we went to. We we asked a number of people what to do. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe said, don't do it. Don't trade Jews like sacks of potatoes. It's time to tell them, let them live like Jews or leave like Jews. And uh, we, had a, we wrote to a series of people in the Jewish community, Jewish leaders, getting their judgment on how to act. And of the 10 people we polled, three of them happened to be Orthodox. Malcolm Holmine was then president of the President's Conference. Rabbi Simon Schwab of Breuer's my Rebbe Ravon Salvechik. And the three of them said, cut a deal with the Russians among certain lines. And the other seven people all said, no, don't cut a deal. And Senator Moyne then said, David, listen to the rabbis. That's the way you guys survive, doesn't it? Anyway, to make a long story short, we cut a deal with the Soviets and uh, Sharansky gets out. The rest is history. This is just very, it was a very exciting time to be involved with the entire thing. It was probably the most Exciting thing I've done in my life in terms of something I feel very good about to see how we, what was accomplished. I just have to tell you that the timing is fascinating because the most recent episode that I just released was with none other than Natan Sharansky. I met with him with Moynihan in Israel. I maybe I shouldn't tell the story. He made the diet. It's a great story. I to Moynihan. And Moynihan says, how is life in the Knesset? And Sharansky says, there are days I miss the gulag. <laughs> he has that great dry sense of humor that's one of his lines he says most politicians go from politics into prison he's one of the only that went from prison to politics <laughs> it's interesting because there was so much controversy over the value of demonstrations and about your at one point of view my Rebbe and the Soloveitchiks agreed with him others had a different point of view and it was fascinating after Ramsey threaded that needle we needed both, he said. They both helped. But it was, it was an exciting time. And then again, you know, there's lots of stuff that's not necessarily Jewishly related. I was, was his senior advisor. I did get involved in a lot of domestic politics, whether it was with Walter Mondale, whether it was with Bob Kerry, whether it was with the less than pleasant relationship sometimes with the Clintons. There were some stormy moments there. But we did a, we did a lot, and it was just, it was a joy and a pleasure to work with him. I worked, and I was very fortunate. I worked for Hubert Humphrey. I helped Richard Nixon's re-election campaign. And if you would have told me five years ago that the Democratic Party would be nominating Joe Biden, I would have thought the world had turned upside down. Maybe it did. Moynihan said of Biden in 1988, he's one of the smartest men in the Senate. Whenever he opens his mouth, he tries to prove otherwise. He's gas prone. He's not an orator. But it, it was interesting. As I said, I've been very fortunate. And of course, NCSY remains a huge part of my life. And my wife and I met in NCSY. We live in is the founding chair of NCSY summer programs. Right now, we're going through withdrawal pains. This is the longest in our lives since we were 13 that we have not been at an NCSY convention. Thanks to COVID, been, we've been some virtual ones. But like last summer, for example, we visited 24 NCSY summer programs in the course of the summer. From Camp Sports in Baltimore to um, a program in California 
to the MOA program in the Catskills. And uh, it, it was wonderful. It was just rejuvenating. Just like teaching at Turo is. I get to te- I, we get to play with high school students. We get to teach college students. We just had every Shabbat at our home. It's very sad not to be able to do that now. Mr. Shem, things will get better and we'll be able to uh, continue going that again. It's, it's wonderful. Tell me about your involvement with NCSY from the beginning. How did you get involved initially? And were you very, very active already as a kid and already in high school? NCSY starts in the Deep South in the 1950s. 1954, the Savannah Synagogue sends a delegation to the OU Convention. And with the help of a man, Harold Boxer, a lawyer from New York, they convinced the Orthodox Union to start an official national Orthodox Youth Program. That youth program was, in the sense of the standards we know today, there was mixed dancing, there was mixed swimming. It was a way for teenagers whose parents belonged to Orthodox synagogues to meet each other and not to marry out or something like that. In 1961, there was the turn of Atlanta. The new synagogue wasn't ready. So Rabbi Emanuel Feldman called Rabbi Alexander Gross of Blessed Memory in Miami and said, look, we um, have this youth program, but it's an invention every year. We have it in one of the hotels in Miami. You get involved. You get the young people involved from the Hebrew Academy. and from Maybe we could stop the mixed dancing. Maybe we could have some higher standards because in exchange for your teens taking part. And it was a tremendous battle whether we should go. There were Bayham teachers in our school. I remember, this is the orthodoxy of the late 50s, early 60s. My family was Shomer Shabbat. Of my 24 classmates, I think four came from Shomer Shabbat's family. That's five out of 24. And it was not an easy thing. And they went to Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. Rabbi Joseph Elias went to Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky on behalf of Torah Masora, asked the Shaila. Told the whole story. Rabbi Yaakov said, if they go to Shema, they will, the boys will meet the women they ever shared there. I met Vivian and NCSY. My closest friend, my best friend in the world to this day, Billy Leff, you know him as our Rav Zev Leff Shlipa. He met his wife, Rifkin, in CSY. Chaim Sukenik, who's now the head of one of the most respected programs in Eretz Israel, Malcolm Leib, Dr. Chaim Sukenik. He met his wife, and CSY. All NCSY public school girls we married. We yeshiva boys. So Rabbi Yaakov's bracha worked out pretty well. I was involved in NCSY. I was an officer of the Southern Region. I was a national officer. Vivian was far more involved. She was the only person to ever be on the national board of NCSY in 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. And after we graduated high school, we helped found something called Ben Zakai, which is NCSY's Honor Society, which you are a member, in which we would get top alumni conducted every year, and we'd use it as a vehicle to raise scholarship money. We've raised, I think, about $10 million now. And we give money for teenagers and teens or total education after high school, public school teenagers. We give money for teenagers to go on NCSY summer programs, on NCSY's Yachaykala program, which is a huge public school learning program. And because of NCSY, I got involved in the Orthodox Union. I've been on the board since 1970. My wife is also on the board. We're the only married couple to both be on the board of the OU. After 50 years on the board, I'm becoming an honorary vice president this coming year. So I've been a regular vice president oh, for the last 46 years. It's about time. We need room for a new people. About time they gave you some honor, huh? <laughs> I wrote the amendments so I could become. They said to me, do you think we should do term limits in 10 years? And no, so term limits now, I said. 
we don't, I don't have to wait 10 years to step up. We need other people. I was on the board when I was 21. Why should other, 22? Why should other people have to wait till they're 50 or 60 to get on? The Orthodox Union doesn't really work. I'm not to tell you that. I'm very comfortable with and very happy to work with the Orthodox Union, particularly NCSY, but not just NCSY. I've spoken with JLIC, our college program, huge fan of the work of the OUA, the Orthodox Union, their advocacy with Nathan Diamond. My neighbor, by the way. Think about this for a moment. There are only two Jewish groups in the United States, in the whole United States, who were welcome in the Clinton White House, in the Bush White House, in the Obama White House, in the Trump White House, and will be welcome in the Biden White House. Only two, the Orthodox Union and Chabad. The Jewish groups on the left were not welcome in the Trump White House or the Bush White House. Jewish groups, the right, were not welcome in the Obama White House, and some of them may not be welcome in the, in the Biden White House. But uh, I can pretty much assure you, the OU and Chabad, because they are apolitical, because they work closely with whoever is the president and whoever, and we give them good advice and thanks for a big chunk of thanks there to Nathan, but also the OU leadership. The Orthodox Union is extremely careful and mindful that our obligations are not to take sides, but to provide guidance. That's becoming increasingly harder nowadays with such an incredible polarization in the country. How do you see the state of the country in that regard? And is it possible for, for any interest group to preserve that bipartisan posture nowadays? I think had the Democratic Party dominated either Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, your question would be extremely relevant because an awful lot of people would not have a home. I think when you nominate a guy named Joe Biden, I was just on a call earlier today where a leading Republican figure, I mean a major Republican figure, it was an off-the-record call, said Joe Biden has always cut deals with Republicans. He made some very good deals with McConnell, which Obama scratched. Obama wouldn't allow. But now he's not going to be answerable to Obama. And they're optimistic. I mean, the people, I mean, I, I'm optimistic that, they're, that the same center held. I'm more, I'm, I'll tell you very honestly, I'm very happy with the Republican Senate and a Democratic president. Nancy Pelosi is a centrist. I don't think she, but she's, her progressive wing is growing and we're giving her a very hard time. Now she can say, what can we do guys? The Senate and Obama can say, what can we do? And not, but Biden will do the Senate. Someone, I can't say who, but someone very, very, very close to Joe Biden said of him famously, he works so much better with Chuck Grasley. That's the senior Republican in the U.S. Senate than with Chuck Schumer. Ms. Krupp, he does. So I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic, and I, 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 I'm a solicitor. Pat Moynihan was unique in many respects. He wasn't the only one to believe in bipartisanship. There's a substantial chunk in both parties that want to work together. I'll just give you a little history here. Marco Rubio, the Republican senator, and Joe Biden, and John McCain, and Dick Durbin, almost had a deal on immigration reform, shot down by extremists from both parties. Maybe this time will go through. Maybe Marco Rubio will take the lead and do it. I mean, they're good, sane, moderate people in both parties. The problem is, is that both parties try to convince us to support them by making us believe the other party is controlled by the extremists. If you read the New York Times, you watch CNN, and you only listen to liberal websites, you will believe that QAnon 
where vulgar anti-Semites control the Republican Party. QAnon has, like my count, exactly three, maybe four adherents in Congress on the Republican side. If you listen to Fox News and read right-wing sites, you believe the squad, oh my God, the squad controls the Democratic Party. First of all, Ariana Presley, one of the so-called squad members, is pro-Israel, anti-BDS, and a good friend of the Jewish community in Boston. Secondly, with one new person joining him, Corey Bush, and with AOC not taking any stand on BDS, because she understand exactly what's going on there between you and me. Uh, you have the moment there will be three members, Democratic members of the House, who openly support BDS. And about three Republicans openly support QAnon. What about the other 429 members? You know, Steny Hoyer got up at APAC last year and said, there's 62 freshman Democrats in Congress. 59 of them support APAC. 59 of them oppose BDS. Why do you only know the names of the other three? And we can ask the same question about why do people, everyone knows the names of the handful of extremists on the right. What about all the centrists? And they're our friends, and we're very lucky. We are a very popular minority group in this country. And that's why both parties weaponize us and try to convince us that the other party's not our side, because a lot of good Christians will not vote for anti-Semites. You've remained a Democrat your whole life, and even though you, you operate and, and live, travel quite comfortably within the Orthodox world, where that's increasingly unpopular. The Orthodox world seems to be moving to the right. Well, I was a master vice chairman of Democrats for Nixon in 1972. Um, I helped Richard Nixon get reelected. I give you some cred. I supported Robert Dole for president in 1996. Has Pat Moynihan quietly. I supported George Pataki as governor of New York. I voted twice against Bill de Blasio for mayor and twice again. And I will vote against any Cuomo anytime they run for anything, ever. And so I don't know what, I, I wouldn't say I'm a, cra- a raving partisan Democrat, would I? I guess not, but you're still a Democrat. <laughs> Labels are meaningless. Labels are meaningless. And Dove Heiken is still officially a Democrat, for goodness sakes. I mean, labels mean nothing. I don't think of myself as a Democrat. I think of myself, you ask me what I am. I'm Jewish, I'm Orthodox, I'm American. You know, I, but I, I don't think of myself on party lines. I think, it's, I think it's silly. I mean, the very fact that I was pushing a Republican Senate with a Democratic president tells you something, doesn't it? Indeed. I wrote an article for the, on why, the Jewish case for Biden, for the Jewish press. And the Biden campaign said to me, that's a wonderful article. We really like it. But we can't put our name on it. We can't endorse your article. We're not sending your article around because you blasted the progressives and they were a big part of our coalition. They said, but thank you for doing it. It was really valuable. <laughs> the same reason why I supported George Pataki or Al D'Amato. I mean, we, we get too hung up on labels, Harry. Way too hung up on labels. I mean, look at Maryland. You live in Maryland, but you got a different Republican governor who is, has an outstanding record. And you have two terrific United States senators. All three are very popular in the Orthodox community. That is true. So that's why I rest my case. You know, let's put it this way, you know, as blunt as I can. You can't tell me that you, Orthodox Jews will all become Republican when Chuck Schumer gets 90% of the vote in Borough Park. I have never voted for Chuck Schumer, and I won't. 
90% of the Jews in Borough Park vote for Chuck Schumer. So <laughs> life's more complex, isn't it? Indeed. Now, I know that you've lived for many years in the Bronx, which is a, a neighborhood and area that's changed a lot. I'm just curious about, on a more personal level, what your Jewish community experience has been like in a, uh, in a place that has changed so much. Well, we moved from the Bronx a year and a half ago. We now live in Passaic, New Jersey. We moved from the Bronx. The mikvah closed, the shul closed, we moved. I thought Helen Parker is the most wonderful place to raise children. It was a wonderful community. It had out-of-town advantages. When you're in town, we had a lovely little shul. There were 17 shuls when we moved there 45 years ago. We had a lovely little shul. We had a, a, a terrific group of friends and neighbors. It was not pretentious. We had wonderful Italian neighbors and wonderful religious na- Jewish neighbors. We enjoyed the community very much. But can I tell you a story? Please. You have time for a story? Ready for a story? Listen to a story. Rav Yosheber Soloveitchik points out we say, Gam Charvona Zachor Latov. Who was Charvona? Charvona tried to kill every Jew in the world. Charvona is the guy who says, the Gemara Megillah explains, he's the one that says, there's a gallows, it's the Amos High, that Haman built on which to hang your main dude Mordechai. Haman had just been outed. The king is ready, he's ready to kill Haman. And Charvona, who had helped plan the gallows, that's how he knows it, 50 cubit high. Charvona, who was in in immortal words, in charge of ethnic cleansing and genocide for Haman. And he sees the jigger up, he switches sides. We hate Carbona, don't we? No, we say, I'm Carbona Zachor Latov. Every year we remind ourselves, we don't write people off. And why am I telling you that story? Because Pelham Parkway is a poverty community. I mean, we left, we sold our house, we left, we're very happy where we are now in New Jersey. We left behind a very a community of the elderly, the poor, very poor, a struggling community. Those that can leave left. I mean, once the mikvah closes, I mean, forget it. I mean, the shuls almost all closed. They struggled to have a million, four or five shuls together. We used to be five shuls together, eight shuls together. And this year, there's a sad name is David Edelstein. He has stayed, stuck it out for 40-some years there, head the local Jewish community council. He devotes his life to raising money to help poor Jews in the area. He got a phone call two weeks before Pesach. Uh, my boss, you have a, a food pantry? Yes, we do. You give food to people? Yes. You ask if they're citizens? Of course not. You're helping people make Passover now? Yes, we are. My boss would like to, in this difficult time, Corona, like to raise money to help your community. My boss is doing three fundraisers online among my boss's supporters, who are many. And one of the causes will be to raise money for your group. Okay, so David Elstein, quite skeptical. That Monday, he got the first $17,000. By Pesach, he had $65,000. By the end of the month of Nissan, he had almost 100000 Who was this boss? Who was this person raising this money to help the Orthodox Jews in Fallon Parkway? Her name is Alexia Octavia Cortez, the congresswoman from Pelham Parkway in the box. So I like to say, Gam Corona Zachor Latov. You can never tell. We don't write people off. Now, how does this happen? There have been a meeting of Jewish leaders. have been invited to meet with AOC. And David Edelstein was invited. And he was advised, give her hell. Tell her what she is. And David Edelstein said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to describe her the poverty in our community. And he did. And her stereotype, all Jews were rich. He said he could tell from her face that she was stunned to learn there were poor Jews, struggling Jews, hungry Jews. And then she reached out to him. And not only that, but the Nike Corporation 
heard about her campaign and they sent an application in and the Robin of other foundations because once she started publicizing on her website, other groups also picked up on it and now they have given out I spoke to David Ellison before Roshani told me he had a record number of money of food and help and vouchers to help the several thousand poor Jews left in the community. And so I think one of the important lessons I learned from a Soledadchik, you don't write people off. You know, in the when I was in first thing involved in politics, the two most vicious anti Semites, public anti Semites in America were both named Jesse. Jesse Lewis Jackson, black civil rights leader, presidential candidate, vulgar anti Semite, and Jesse Helms in North Carolina. Both men changed. Jesse Helms became a friend of Israel and Jews. Jesse Jackson saved Jewish lives from the Itala Khomeini at the Lawrence Salvage's request. He went to Russia to push for Gorbachev to save Soviet Jewry. He went to Syria. He became a strong advocate and supporter of Israel. And by the way, the day he started supporting Israel, he disappeared from the news. You haven't seen Jesse Jackson in the newspapers or television about Israel since the day he became a supporter of Israel. Because Horace Greeley, the great newspaper reporter, once said that if you want to know what goes on the front page of the paper, when a dog bites a man, it's not news. When a man bites a dog, it's news. And so when Jesse Jackson was anti-Semitic, he got publicity. He's become our friend on Israel. No one talks about him anymore. But Tom Corona is not close up. It's a great story. And I particularly love the story because uh, David Edelstein's son, Yossi, is a very good and long-time friend of mine. Um, so he'll be excited to... Uh, to be referenced as well on the podcast. Uh, and actually the only time that I've ever spent in the Bronx was visiting their house for a Shabbos. Now, David, he had his Muslim are beyond comprehension. I'm jealous. As someone said, they're jealous of the Zolom Hab. I said, no, I'm jealous of the Zolom Hazeh. He helps so many people. Uh, Dr. Lukens, what are you doing today? You're still working in Turo? What, and tell me just a little bit about your work there. I am chair of the political science department at Turo College. I am the founding dean of the Lander College for Women of Turo. I teach two courses a semester. I'm involved in a lot of other stuff. It's the first time since 1974. I'm not traveling every Tuesday and Thursday to recruit in high schools. I'm very frustrated. I love recruiting. I love speaking about Judaism and Jewish topics. But uh, hopefully I'm going to start doing that online. I didn't want to start until after the election. So I didn't want to get involved in the election, but now I'm going to have a post-election analysis, which hopefully will stress the importance of bipartisanship and the Jewish community working together with everyone. And hopefully I'll be offering that in the next week or two as a virtual visit. I've already one school already contacted Two schools already approached me to do it. You're recruiting students for Tarot College? Well, I, I give a speech on a topic. Anti-Semitism, the Middle East, and then afterwards I'm available to ask and answer questions about my college. It works very effectively. I'm not a recruiter, but I recruit by giving lectures. So we have official admission staff that comes with me. We have, thank God, we have over 500 students in Lander College for Women. So we've gotten 13 students in Harvard Law School from the Lander Colleges in the last eight years. Turo is a serious academic institution. We have several medical schools. We're just amazing. I was there at the beginning. I was hired by Dr. Bernard Lander to recruit the first class in the men's school in 1971. Look what it's become now. 19,000 students the largest institution of higher education in the world are the Jewish hospitals. The only Shomer Shabbos dental school in the world. The only Shomer Shabbos school of podiatry in the world. The only medical school, by the way, in the United States, which is completely affiliated. There's a wonderful medical school, which I've been at for many years, Albert Einstein, but they now are affiliated with 
Montefiore Hospital as well as Yeshiva University. Joe has a terrific medical school. And in every respect, it's just a, it's a joy and pleasure to work for Torah. One of my regrets with this podcast is that I didn't start it early enough to uh, interview Rabbi Lander, Dr. Lander, uh, who is such an extraordinary figure from what I understand. He was just a visionary beyond comprehension. He was, I mean, I'd say the most influential people in my life were Rabbi Shabir Salvechik, Rabbi Salvechik, the Sachin family. It would be the Salvechik brothers, Rabbi probably first, Rabbi Stolper, the founder of NCSY, and uh, Dr. Lander. I was very deep impact on me. And what's so inspiring to me about his biography also is that I believe he started Turo College when he was like 55 or 60 already? 55. He was the first civil rights commissioner of the city of New York. He's the man who convinced Martin Luther King to move the march in Washington from a Saturday to a Wednesday, even though it meant hundreds of thousands of black people would have to miss work for two days or three days so that the Orthodox Jews could take part. He was his friend, Bayard Rustin, he convinced him. Just an historic figure. He helped create NCSY also. He played a major role in creating NCSY. He was on the Youth Commission for many years. That's how I first met Dr. Land, because of NCSY. And then he uh, told me about his plan about the college, and I said, when you do it, give me a call. And I stand there, I got a phone call. And I'm a founding member of the faculty, and this it opened. I'm very young. I, I have tenure. I'm very, as I said, Coach Baruch has been extremely kind to me, and I'm very fortunate and very thankful. Are there any projects or goals that you still have that you'd like to bring to fruition in any of these arenas, the NCSY, whether it's Turo, whether it's politics, anything you, unfinished business? I've learned in life that we do things one person at a time, one nisham at a time. My wife and I were able to go to NCSY events. We meet teenagers, speak to them, follow up with them, and they call us, and they visit us, and then we can touch them when they go to an on to Israel very often for a year, and Turo or Stern, and they're Israel. And it's, uh, I don't think in grandiose dreams. I, I leave that to people. Those are the Dr. Landers of the world. My, my job is to try to help people one person at a time. And I, Hashem, I think I, I've had a favor from that. It's a wonderful feeling. It's a special feeling to be invited to the wedding of somebody whose parents and grandparents you may have had a Hashem through the years. Every step point in my life when we get those kind of invitations. Beautiful. Well, you started by saying that you thought you had a pretty uh, ordinary life. I think it's uh, rather extraordinary, both in the content of your own activities and in the proximity that you've had to great, great people. Well, that, that's true. I've been, I've been very fortunate. At Arthur Sessner Jr. is my professor in graduate school, a world-famous historian. And uh, he was a reformed rabbi. Who once, I, got, I got an award once in the Jewish Council of Public Affairs. And David Saperstein, his leading reform rabbi, got to introduce me. He looked at my resume and he said, David Lukens, he said, has been touched by Gedolim. He said, Hubert Humphrey, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. And then he said, Rabbi Joseph, I, was your like I have been very fortunate. Because we're from the decisions of life, we make the decisions. And I believe I've been lucky and fortunate. And Kasparov has been kind to me. And, and the greatest credit all goes to my wife, Vivian, really. Uh, Anything and everything I've accomplished because of her and her inspiration and her assistance. Dr. David Lukens, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Robert. My pleasure. Take care. Be well. 
This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.